Pastor. Thank you for being here tonight. I know it's cold outside and we've had wet weather and a lot of other things like that, but thank you for being God's house and being faithful tonight. Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. How many have read the book of Esther recently? Anybody? What a blessing tonight. We're going to see a, a thought here this evening that I want to capture. And we're just kind of going on our theme of going forward. Last week we preached a message entitled, Going Forward by Being Zealous in Good Works. Tonight I want you to see an area where we need to go forward in that I pray that just a, a very good um, uh, illustrative thought that God gives, a very colorful thought that God gives us here in Esther 5 and 4 and 5 that will help us tonight. Say amen if you're there. Esther chapter 4. Now, you need to be ready to take some notes tonight because this, is, this has got some good, good stuff here tonight. And I don't, I don't normally say this, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to the house of prime rib tonight. Amen? We're going to the house of prime rib. Amen? You get your knife out. Butter knife won't cut it. Amen? Brother AJ, show them what kind of knife they need to have. Amen? You know, you know we just need to show them tonight. And we're going we're gonna to get the house of prime rib tonight here. And if you're not hungry, if you're a vegetarian, I'm going to change you tonight because we're going to the house of prime rib this evening. So I want you to have a good time this evening. Now, I'm not trying to be offensive. I know some are vegans and all that. That's fine. That's good. That, I, I believe in that. But tonight, we're going to be into the meat. The Bible says to get the vegetables of the Word. The Bible says get the meat of the Word. Amen? Amen? Get to the meat of the Word. Okay? Be a meat eater. Be a carnivore. Tonight only. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Esther chapter 4. Not Exodus. Esther chapter 4. Verse 15. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. <clears throat> Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, three days, night or day. Now, let me just give you caution here. <clears throat> one, one of the problems reading commentaries, because some of you read a lot of commentaries, don't believe everything commentators tell you. It's like the old southern preacher said, they're common potatoes. They're not commentators, amen, okay? Now, some commentators will tell you this with what I just read to you, what we see here in the King James Version. What could be that it was two nights and one day. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is literal in what it says. Don't change what God's Word says. We need to be like what God told Balaam, okay? I will say exactly what the Lord wants me to say, no more, no less, okay? So he says here... <clears throat> nor three drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. <clears throat> and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. You need to underline that because that's, that's a key thought we're going to come to tonight. Which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's another thought to underline. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. <clears throat> Chapter 5. Excuse me. <coughs> I have a little, little bit of trouble in my throat tonight. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house. I'm about to have a fit right now. This is so good. Over against the gate of the house. And was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in his court, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held, held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now notice this last portion. Are you there? Amen. Are you there? Amen. 
So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Oh, man, this is good. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. I want to preach a message tonight. We're having a Bible study this evening, but I'm going to preach a message tonight entitled, Touching the Scepter of the King. Touching the Scepter of the King. Now I'm going to tell you tonight how we're going to break through ceilings. I want you to see tonight how God gives us breakthroughs. I want you to see tonight the difference maker between getting it done and being status quo. The king held out his scepter, which she was afraid of, as we'll see in chapter 4, about whether he would even do that. And as soon as he put it out, she got a hold of the scepter of the king. Father, tonight, oh God, I pray this evening you'd come down upon Heritage Baptist Church. Lord, the most important thing going on in San Leandro right now is what happens in this room. The Spirit of the living God fall fresh upon me this evening and upon your congregation. First, Lord, I, I'm cognizant of the admonition that you gave us to Peter, where the flock of God must be fed the word of God. God, I pray you'd feed our souls as we preach about this morning. Lord, we, 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 I pray you'd help us that our, our mindset and our heart is that we don't want like the crowd did. They wanted a material Jesus. They wanted a Jesus that could take care of their bodies not a Jesus that could fill the hunger in their souls. And tonight we pray that we'd want Jesus more than anything else. We'd say like the songwriter wrote, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than all the world. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And tonight I pray that you'd give us the tools and the meat and the ammunition tonight <clears throat> that we need as Christians, that we so long to be fruit-bearing Christians. We so long to abound in what Brother Denny read tonight from 1 Corinthians 15, 58, always abounding in the work of the Lord. <clears throat> I pray tonight that you lift the ceiling, you show us from the Word of God how God works even in spite of very difficult situations and how what we read tonight can change the world. But Lord, before it changes the world, it's got to change us. And I pray this evening that the Holy Spirit would have freedom. I need help to preach this tonight. It's, it's so simple, and yet it's so profound. And God, I need help tonight that it stays simple, that, Lord, it just permeates our heart. God, I pray that you'll do it in our hearts like you did for Jeremiah. On that day, he felt like he wanted to quit the ministry. After that, that man named Pasher, Pasher had slapped him beside the head, and, and he said, I'm just going to quit. I don't want anything to do with the ministry. But he said his word was in my heart like a burning fire. And God, while we're musing tonight on the Word of God, trust trying to understand it, I pray the fire would burn. God, burn a fire that could change, Lord, missions, and burn a fire tonight that could change our prayer lives, and burn a fire tonight that could change uh, what happens here in the Bay Area. I pray this evening that, God, you'd love us through your Word, and I pray you'd teach us through your Word, and God, I pray that tonight the power of God would come down upon our church in a mighty way. 
Thank you for all that happened this morning. I'm so thankful, God, for the word of God that was preached today. Thank you for the pastors that were visiting and visitors that were here tonight. But Lord, on this final service tonight of the, of the day, we need a special moving of the Holy Spirit that can change our church. God, change me as a pastor, change our pastoral staff, change our Sunday school teachers, change us as laymen, change us our deacons, change your God. I pray every person in this church tonight, those watching by live stream, that we catch, Lord, to what, what this passage is all about and the principle found therein. Well, thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're looking at one of the great historical books of the Bible. The book of Esther is, is a book named after a woman. Next time a, a feminist tells you that God's not concerned about women, take them the book of Esther. Amen? Read them Proverbs 31. This woman was a queen. She was special. She was heroic. I might even say this tonight. Esther was even epic in what she did. What Esther did saved an entire race of people. Think about that. What Esther did is written in the word of God so that we might see a vital lesson for our lives. The book of Esther is part of the holy canon of Scripture, and yet it's very unusual. The name of God or any of the names of God are not mentioned one time from the very first verse to the last verse. God is not mentioned here. But even though God's not, His name is not there, God is all over the book of Esther. God is all over the book of Esther. I mean, the prov if you have any questions about the providence of God, the providence of God is right here in the book of Esther. It's so wonderful. There's so many, so many things as you just read through and read through and read through it that you find that are so pertinent to the Christian life. The Bible tells us here right in the middle of the book that Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. The scepter was a rod about this long. <clears throat> Around the top it had an orb made out of gold decorated with jewels. If you ever get a chance to go over to, um, over to London, England, to the, the, the castle there where all the crown jewels and all those things are on display, you, well, you want to next time look for a rod like that. The rod was symbolic of kingly authority, kingly power. The rod represented that the king had control over the entire kingdom. To touch, that, to touch that scepter meant you were accessing all the power of the kingdom. And that's what happened here when Esther went out and touched that, that scepter there. And so tonight I want us to look at this, what led to her touching the scepter of the king and how powerfully it changed a lot of things there in this passage of scripture. Three major points I want you to see. A lot of sub-points I want you to follow. Notice, first of all, we need to go back to chapter 3. I want you to see how this all came about. I'd like you to see beginning in verse chapter 3, a deadly predicament. A deadly predicament. In chapter 3, we have introduced to us a, a key characters. And these key characters are, are, are very important for us to understand as we get our, work our way through the book of Esther. Because the Jews are in a heap of trouble. When the book of Esther is written, Ezra had led 
to the construction of the temple. But the book of Ezra had still not been completed if you study the historical aspect of this. And Esther kind of comes right in the middle of all this situation. This is King Xerxes. He's called Ahasuerus in this book, but this is also known as King Xerxes here. Esther is a Jewish woman. She has not revealed herself, as we get to chapter 3, as a Jewish woman. She is the cousin of Mordecai, who is also the legal guardian of her life. Her parents had died while they were there in, in, in Persia. The Persians were in rule. Mordecai, as an older cousin, took her under his wings as his, as his legal guardian. He had a very, very strong, uh, if you would, paternalistic um, feeling towards her. He felt like he was just like her father and took very good care of her. There was a situation happened in the kingdom where Vashti, the queen, was dethroned. She took a stand against the, 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 the king, uh, Xerxes, using her as, a, as an object. And she just said, I'm not going to do that. And so he, she was dethroned. She was removed from her position. And then the king came up with the idea that they needed to have a new queen. So they did a, they did a, a, a kind of a, a, a search for a queen. And Esther was, was uh, Mordecai suggested to Esther, you need to, you need to enroll with this. And he didn't know all that was going to come down, but God was in this matter. And, and he volunteered her. So she went through these, these days of purification, found favor with the king. Again, God's hand was in this matter. And the king decided of all the women that, he, that he'd had interviewed and had been with, that he decided that, that Esther would be the one he would make as his queen. So as we get to chapter 3, Esther's queen. Esther's next to the king. She's the one person that could perhaps touch his heart more than anybody else in the kingdom. And we get to chapter 3, and Esther's in the background here. And as we look at the situation, we notice in verse 1, we see a persona of evil. The Bible says in verse 1, after these things, after, after Esther had gone to the throne as queen, and after several other things had happened and transpired, Mordecai had, had averted a disaster from happening in the kingdom. He averted an assassination attempt on the king, but he was not recognized by that. And that's very important for us to understand because this would show up later on. I mean, God's all over the situations, we'll see. And uh, we get to chapter 3, verse 1, we see a persona of evil. It says, after these things, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advance him and set him his seat above all the princes that were with him. Now, we know enough about this man Haman that we see some things that, I, honestly, if you read this carefully and understand it, as you understand how the story unfolds, if you were a Jew, your hair should be standing up on your back. And your blood should be boiling because this guy is nothing but a persona of evil. Notice it tells us in verse 1, for those of you new to the scriptures tonight, first we're told that, his name, that he was an Agagite. Now as an Agagite, he was a descendant of King Agag who was mentioned to us in 1 Samuel 15. Now King Agag was a descendant or he was an Amalekite. The Amalekites were the, the avowed enemies of the Jews. The Amalekites hated the Jews. And in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, God had given a command to King Saul that you need to rise up. It was the last test that King Saul was given to prove whether or not he would be obedient to God. And by the way, just I want to say this tonight. You know, God knows where there's disobedience in our lives. And God sees disobedience. And I'm just saying, well, God is very patient with us. And sometimes he just maybe gives those out another test to us to see whether or not we will be obedient. And King, King Saul was told, you need to go and wipe out all the Amalekites. You said, well, man, that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty, pretty brutal on God's part. Not really, if you consider how brutal the Amalekites were. They were idol-worshiping people. And if you consider all the way back to Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites came down from the mountains and attacked Israel from behind. The Bible says, then came Amalek. And when they attacked him from behind, he did the cowardly thing. He attacked the women and the babies and the elderly, which were, which were at the back of the, of the group that was going there. He attacked all the weak, weak ones to draw attention 
attention to himself. He wasn't willing to confront Israel head on. And so God told, told Saul, King Saul, I, I, will, I will never forget the dastardly deed, the cowardly deed that he did there. But he said, your forefathers have not done the job. They did not take out the Amalekites. Now, if you want to get the Amalekites out of your way, you better deal with this, this matter of Agag. You need to kill Agag because he's a, he's a blood, bloodthirsty man. And he killed many people, just a terrible person. He says, you got to deal with Agag, you got to deal with the Amalekites, and King Saul did not. And because of King Saul's failure, even though Agag later was killed by Samuel, because of King Saul's failure, some Agagites, if you would, some descendants of his, and Amalekites uh, escaped and continued on. Now we go 700 years later. Now, the Jews have gone through Babylonian captivity. The Jews have made one advancement back into, Israel, back into Jerusalem. But there's a remnant of Agagites that are still out there. And let me tell you this tonight. If you don't deal with the enemy and you don't deal with sin head on, it always comes back and raises his ugly head and comes after us. It always comes back to bite us. It always comes back to hinder us here. And so this, we're told here that this man Haman, who somehow worked his way into the Persian kingdom, he worked his way into the political circles, he networked himself to where he got prominence within the kingdom, got to this place where now he's promoted. He got the favor of King Xerxes. Now, if you understand King Xerxes, he was a very impulsive very fleshly individual. He was moved by emotion, and I'm not sure what happened, but he could be bought, he could be manipulated, uh, he could be, he could, his attention could be diverted in the wrong ways. And Haman knew that, and Haman took advantage of the king many times. And as he did so, we, we're told here, this man, this, this Haman the Agagite was advanced, <coughs> and he set his seat above all the princes that were above him. Now, what that basically means is Haman was a major decider. He was a major man of influence in the kingdom. And, you know, when you follow politics and things like that, you kind of need to look at who gets where and why they, why they politic for certain seats. And this happens in major corporations because where you can get the seat of influence, you can move a lot of things. You can make decisions there. And we'll see some of this. Now, notice these things. I said he's a person of evil. There's some things we see about Haman just because of time tonight. Now, what you write this down? In Haman, we see pride and worldly lust. In Haman, we see scorn. In Haman, we see wrath. In Haman, we see deceitfulness. In Haman, we see hatred. In Haman, we see murder. We see a man who, who is the persona of evil. And we see something else here. He's in a place we can make some major decisions. Now, let me just put out there tonight, please pray for the state of California and the political leaders we have. And please pray for our country. We're in a mess. Beloved, if you knew the laws that are pending right now, and if God willing, I hope to have, I hope to get Senator Mike Morell to come down. He's a godly Christian man. But Brother Justin and I had a chance to meet him last year at Capital Connection. And the way he described the process of things going to Sacramento, my hair stood up. I mean, literally, you, you, that, that's a, that, that is the synagogue of Satan up there in Capitol, up, up, on, up there in Sacramento, the things that go on up there. And Mike Morrell is just a few of our, of, our, of our, just a handful of state, Christian state senators and assemblymen just trying to live for God and do the right thing there. And I'm just, I tell you, some of the things that were averted and by, that didn't pass legislation last year was by the hand of God. But Christian, I want to tell you, we're getting close to an election year. Don't wait till the election year comes up. This is the time for us to really prevail in prayer. And, I, and I'm saying that right now up front because you'll see how that, 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 that's going to fit right within what we're, 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 we're looking at tonight. That's not my message, but I just want to throw that out there tonight that we're dealing with some personas of evil that are rewriting things. Did you know our governor changed the name of his wife from the first lady to first partner? You get what I'm saying? 
there's a, there's a, there's a world of difference. There's an agenda out there, okay? And little children going to school are being indoctrinated from the moment they get into the nursery into the kindergarten. What was once good is now called evil. What was once evil is now called good. Did you know a California preacher put out there? Bruce Jenner is still a man. He's making a statement. He's trying to understand because they're reading all this soap opera. Get out the soap opera. Use some soap and get clean, but get out the soap opera. Amen. He got protested. The preacher got protested. He got censured. He had people come tell him that you need to strike that out, take that off your billboard. Well, praise God, he had enough courage and boldness to put it up. Amen. You know. We see a persona of evil. Notice number letter B. We see a purposed exception. Well, this man's advance, he's a persona of evil. We're going to see unfolding here. This man with all his wickedness there. And the Bible says in verse 2, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. Would you underline that? All the king's servants. Now, that's how powerful this man was. You do your study of the history of this king. He had a big payroll. <laughs> he had a lot of servants. And the Bible says, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. And notice that for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now that's kind of interesting for a king to elevate a man to a position of office that he would tell the people, you bow to him when he walks by. Because normally kings would not do that. You only bow to the king. This man, Haman, got to such a position, he was almost close to the king in that capacity. But that's not where I want to stop tonight. I want you to see a purpose exception. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Mordecai bowed not. Mordecai was a Jew. He may have been displaced, he may not have been in Jerusalem, but he was a still a patriotic Jew. He was a man that loved God. He worshipped the living God as far as he was concerned. He might have been in Persia, but there was still one God. As he may have been in Persia, but he still had one king that he worshipped. And Mordecai may have been displaced, but he wasn't, didn't lose his dedication, didn't lose his devotion for God. The Bible says Mordecai bowed not. You want, to work, you want to underline that tonight. Mordecai was an exception to the compromised Christian lifestyles of his day. Mordecai was like his predecessors, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. He bowed not. He bowed not to the pressures. He bowed not to the change of the laws. He bowed not to Haman. He bowed not to Haman's delights and all those things. He did not bow to him. I'm saying tonight, Mordecai bowed not. We need some Christians tonight that will bow not. Don't bow to the pressures of compromise. Don't bow to the pressures of ancestor worship. Don't bow to the pressures of public opinion. Don't bow to the pressure of monetary allurement. Listen, it says Mordecai bowed not. It could have cost him his position. It could have cost him his job. As we'll see later on, it would have wound up costing him his life. Listen, Mordecai what, what may have thought in his mind. He was an intelligent man. He probably thought of all the repercussions associated with not bowing. But Mordecai purpose in his heart. He would not bow. Hey, listen, we need a generation of Christians. You're not just a Christian when you come to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and Friday night. You're a Christian 24-7 all the time for God. 
Young people, don't bow to, don't bow to anthropology and don't bow to this, the, the onslaught against creationism and don't bow to people that swear and think that's the way to go and don't bow to immorality. Listen, we need to decide tonight that just as this man Mordecai, he said he bowed not to Haman. There are Haman's personas of evil all about us. We should bow not to this evening. Don't bow. We see this persona of evil. We see this purpose exclusion. But notice what this led to. Notice in the remainder of the chapter, verses 8 to 15 in chapter, th- chapter 3, we see a perilous enactment. The servants of the king came to Mordecai and said, Why transgresses thou the king's commandment? Well, Mordecai, remember, he had a higher commandment. Thou shalt not serve any other gods. And in verse 5, we see, when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Now, I want to tell you something tonight before we jump on all over Mordecai. He wasn't trying to be disrespectful. He was a man of influence. He stood in the king's gate. He was influential. In fact, we go back to chapter 2. It was, it was Mordecai because he sat in the king's gate. Because of his influence, he averted the assassination of the king. And so important was that aversion that he did. Did you know that was later on recorded in the annals of the king and would later on be read to the king on a sleepless night the king had? But Mordecai would bow not. And Haman's full of wrath and Haman's angry because he wasn't acknowledged. And he, was, he was angry because no one, that this man would not bow to him. And then he later on found out this man was a Jew. Jews and Amalekites, avowed enemies. So look at verse 8 to 15. Haman goes to the king and he has all this, he has this ability of, of influencing the king and swaying the king his way. And he says, there's a certain group of people out there that will not bow to you and will not keep the king. Actually, saying, he was saying, there's a certain group of people there that really don't obey your commandments. He says, king, what I propose is this kind of people, if you let that go by, I propose, if you let that go by, that could be detrimental to your kingdom. So I propose to you that we enact a law that would be sealed by the, the ring of the king, and this law would be basically this, that these people that are scattered abroad, that you take these people and issue a death sentence, and the timing of this was the first month of their year. He said, 11 months from now in our 12th month, what I'd like you to do is on the 12th month, exactly 11 months from now, what we'd like to do, to do is that all throughout the kingdom, that we're going to pass a law. We're going to pass a law. And when this law is passed, it can't be broken. No one's going to change this law. We're going to pass this law. This law that's going to be passed will basically be a death sentence because it's going to issue command all throughout the kingdom because, because Haman knew there were people that didn't like the Jews that were in their kingdom. We're going to pass this law and on the neck of the law, every single Jew throughout the, pro, throughout the kingdom of Persia will be killed. Now, how extensive was the kingdom? 127 provinces. That's right. From Egypt to India. You think about provinces, you think about the control, you think about how mighty the Persian Empire was. It was a mighty empire. And the king went along because Haman pitched it, he pitched it in such a way that the king said, yeah, that's a great idea, Haman, that's a great idea. And he gave him his ring and he sealed it with his ring. And the law was passed that said there'd be the genocide of an entire race of people. 
A law was passed and the Jewish people, if you would, were under the curse of the law. It reminds you today, Christian friend, that everyone who does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, they're under the curse of a different law, the law of God. An enactment was made. A law is passed. And everyone under that law was under the sentence of death. We see a deadly predicament. Number two, would you see the second thing this evening? Now let's go to chapter four. The law was to be taken by posts who were to take it in every city. They began through Shushan the palace. They took it throughout the entire kingdom and it was read. It was to be read at the same time it was taken throughout these 127 provinces from Egypt all the way to India. And as was read, the entire world of every Jew was turned upside down, if you can imagine that. Every Jew was a believer in, in God. Every Jew believed in God Almighty. They believed in one God. They were monotheistic. They were not polytheistic. They understood the commandments of God. Yea, they may have been a little bit, they may have been a little messed up in terms of things they did, but they believed in one God. They believed in the God who redeemed them, the God that saved them. They still practiced the ceremonies and all of those things that pointed to Jesus Christ. Now this law is bad in the entire the entire Jewish race is, is upside down in, in, in just turmoil in their soul because it's death sentence. It's basically they're counting down the day until the day that that, 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 that that last month of the year in which the death sentence would be brought on them. And they're all of upheaval and Jews are crying and all of these things. Notice when we get to chapter 4 verses 1 to 4, we see this getting to Mordecai. And the spotlight is not just on all the Jews. The spotlight is on Mordecai. Notice in Mordecai we see a heartbroken request. The Bible says in chapter 4, verse 1, that Mordecai perceived all that was done, and Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out to the midst of the city, and he cried with a loud and bitter cry. He's devastated. Now I want you to understand, he is a public official. Public officials in the Persian kingdom were not supposed to dress in sackcloth. Not only that, he stood in the king's gate where he was crying. We read in verse 1, he's standing in the king's gate there. He's in the king's gate crying loudly and, and, and bitterness and loudly. And, and you, just, you just have to imagine. I mean, it's like a wailing. It's a banshee wailing. I mean, it's loud. Everybody in the street can hear it. And, and uh, all this is going on. This commotion is going on. There. And Mordecai is just making this commotion because he's heartbroken. He realizes his action just brought a death sentence on every single person that was of the same race as him. You notice verse 2, and it says, It came even before the king's gate, and none might enter to the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. The Bible says in verse 3, There was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther doesn't know about this. Remember, Esther's up, up here. Esther's the queen. She has no clue what's happened here. She has not the foggiest idea. She's going on with court, court, you know, she's going on with royal life. And some of her maids and attendants hear about what's going on. They hear this wailing outside. They say, what in the world? They say, well, it's Mordecai. Now remember, 
Esther had not revealed that she was a Jewish, a Jewish woman. She was born and raised there in Persia, so most likely she spoke their language, and man, she was probably very active to the culture. She probably blended in very well, so nobody really just guessed ethically that she was a Jewish woman. And so, so word gets back to her, and she's she's touched. She's touching her heart, and she's moved because because uh, this is her this is her cousin. This is the man that raised her in lieu of her father because her father had died and raised in lieu of her mother because her mother had died. And she's touched by that. And notice we see she's touched by that. And so after she gets this word in verse 4, then she says immediately she's, she's exceedingly grieved, the Bible says. She says, oh, whatever's touching him bothers me. And immediately she realized, well, you know, you're in the wrong. Mordecai, what are you doing? You're wearing sackcloth. You can't be wearing that. You're, you're the king that's going to kill you. And so she sent some royal clothing to him. She says, change out your sackcloth. Take off your potato sack and put on, put on, put on these royal apparel. He refused to put it on. And then she calls in verse 5, Hatak, one of her chamberlains. She says, and she gives him a commandment. She says, I want you to go to Mordecai, and I want to know exactly what's going on here. This is pretty serious. She sends her most trusted advisor, most trusted chamberlain. She sends him there in verse 5 to inquire about Mordecai, what's going on. Mordecai tells him all that happened. Notice verse 6 and 7. He goes there and he tells him in verses 7 and 8 that, that Haman has been promised a sum of money that he's going to pay 10,000 pieces of silver to everyone who's involved in killing off the Jews. This is amazing what money motivates people to do. He tells him, verse 7, of the sum of money that's been committed. And, Mordecai, and you know, Haman is such a manipulator, such a conniver. He says, you know, we ought to pay this money. But really what he's saying, it ain't coming out of my coffers, king. I'm going to get you to put the money up. He got the king to do everything that was deadly. By the way, let me just remind you tonight, when the devil starts whispering, you be careful what the devil tells you. Amen. Yeah. And then notice verse 8. Mordecai got a copy of the law. He wasn't going to deal with hearsay. He wanted to get a copy of the law. And he gave him the copy of the writing and of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for her people. Notice he makes, he makes this, this heartfelt request, this heartbroken request. He says, listen, you've got to go to Esther and you've got to tell Esther, here's the law. We're, we're under a death sentence as a Jewish people. You've got to tell her she's got to go to the king. She's the only one that can appeal to the king. Do you hear what I just said? That she's the only one that can appeal to the king. She's the only one close enough to the king that can go to him to tell him, you've got to do something about it. You've got to change this law. You've got to turn this about. Listen, Esther, you're the only one. And he says, notice verse 8, you've got to make requests before him for her people. Heartbroken requests. Would you do something? Will you go to the field? Will you pray? Will you live for God? Will you get saved? I mean, man, listen, Mordecai had the urgency of a preacher preaching as if his very last message. Do something for God. Listen, you may never get another chance. Let me tell you tonight, if you don't do something for God tonight, you may never get another chance again. You don't get saved tonight, you might never get a chance again. You don't surrender to the ministry, God may just say, forget it, I'm going to call somebody else to do it. You don't decide you're going to be a soul winner, get serious for God and busy for God. God's going to say, I give you many chances. Today might be the day I'm going to quit. 
I mean, Mordecai had this urgency, he had it in his soul. You've got to do something, Esther, for your people. Notice we see a hesitant regent. Hatech gives the word back to Esther, verses 11 to 12. And she hears this message. Now, has anybody ever come to you and says, I've got to talk to you about something. Sit back, it's pretty heavy. Anybody ever do that to you? That's my life every day of my life, amen? <laughs> I have something very heavy I want to tell you. And that's how Haytag came back to Esther. I've got something very heavy I've got to tell you. And she's a young woman. She may be queen, but this is, you couldn't go to school to get what she was just being told. She listens. Of course, she's already heavy hearted because she's seen Mordecai sitting at the king's gate with the sackcloth on and wailing away like a banshee. And notice in verse 12 what she says to Hatech. This is what you go back and tell my cousin Mordecai. In fact, let's just read it, and I'll, and I'll tell you, I'll give you an interpretation. Look at verse 11 and 12. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such as to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, would you notice her, her, her reaction? This is not a response. Her reaction to, to what Hatak just tells her from Mordecai. She, she says, listen, Hatak, you need to tell my cousin. Everyone in the kingdom knows this. There's a law we have. Everyone knows in this law that if you come to the king's court without the king's request, he's going to put you to death. He, if he doesn't, he didn't ask for you to come, you don't show up there. And she says the exception to that is the person the king extends his golden scepter to. If he extends the golden scepter, that's the green light, you can go in. But she says, I don't even think I can do that. Then notice that now. That's what she's saying. I don't even think I can do that. She says, I haven't been in his court for 30 days. It's been 30 days since I've seen his face. It's been 30 days since I've come to that inner court. Now, the king, you have to remember, he had a lot of things going on there. I'm not going to say he was overly busy, but he liked to indulge himself, and he was a party goer and a number of things like that. And we read that in the very opening chapter there. And so she's a little, she's not a little, she's extremely apprehensive. She's extremely concerned about her own, her own fate right now because her, her thoughts not thinking about all the Jews. She's not thinking about her people. She's thinking about her. And her perception, her ideas, if I go to the king, even though I'm queen, if I go to the king, he won't receive me unless he extends that golden scepter. He hasn't invited me. He hasn't said to come. And if I show up there based on the law that we know, everybody knows this law, if I show up there, she said, he might kill me. I, I don't know about this. I haven't been there for 30 years. Hey, listen, she had this perception that she had a king that would not receive her. Glory to God. I'm thankful today. I've got a king I can see 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Amen. Amen. But that's not her perception. Her perception is this king, he's going to kill me. And so we see this hesitant regent. Notice, if you would, an a honest reality. So there's this exchange. Mordecai is in the gate in sackcloth. 
Haytech goes with some of the servants, and they go back to Mail Mordecai. By the way, aren't you glad for email and text messaging? <laughs> because in verse 10, 11, now she's asserting her authority. She gave a commandment to Mordecai. You, you follow what I'm saying? This, is her, this was her legal guardian at one time, and this is her cousin. But now she, she's kind of exerting her, her, her role and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, cousin, cousin Mordecai, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but you don't tell me to go to the king because the king might kill me. And I'm going to tell you right now that, that I haven't been there for 30 days, and this is not going to happen. She's extremely reluctant to go to the king. She has this envisionment the king's going to kill her. She has this envisionment the king will reject her. She has this envisionment that she'll waste her time. She has this envisionment that the king won't do anything for her. I want you to rest your thoughts on that for just a minute. And so the, the, the servants go back to Mordecai, and Mordecai hears these words, and he tells Esther this honest reality. He says, listen, Esther. I want to tell you something. He says, you can believe what you want to believe, but I'm going to tell you what. If you don't go right now, God will raise up deliverance somewhere else. He said, but don't you know, it could be that God has put you as queen. God has put you as position for such a time as this. Do you understand how perilous the situation is? God has raised you up for such a time as this, Esther. And you're telling me that you won't use your influence and you won't go to the king and you won't make supplication for your people? You're telling me you won't do this because you're afraid of your own life? He says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. God, I, this is just the faith of Mordecai. He said, look, God's going to raise somebody up. I just know enough about our history. I know enough about our future. I know enough about what God's going to do with us. I know there's going to be a promised Messiah. He says, in his eyes, we're on that. I know there's going to be a promised Messiah. I know this is all going to unfold. And I know that all the Jews will be back in Jerusalem one day. He had, read, he had been reading his Bible, and I think he read Daniel chapter 9. Amen. And he says, listen, I know how this is all going to unfold, but right now, I just know that you're in a critical position. You're in the most influential position of anybody in this kingdom of all 127 provinces that can influence this king and touch his heart. And you're telling me you're not going to do it? Well, I'm going to tell you something, Queen Esther. God, if you won't do it, God's going to raise somebody up to do it. But he says, if you don't, what makes you think you're going to escape judgment? Now, I'm going to give you a similar law. Do you listen to me, Christian friend? If you're not out winning souls, you're not giving the gospel out trying to win people to Christ, if you don't get them, God's going to get somebody else to win to Christ, but their blood's still on your hands. Don't push off on somebody else. What is your responsibility? That's why Paul could stand before those Corinthians, and he said, as they blasphemed and they opposed themselves, the Bible says he rent his garments, and he said, your blood be upon your own hand. I am clean. The honest reality is, Esther, look at, verse, look at verse 14. Who knoweth that thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now, I want to give you an honest reality, church. Who knoweth that this church has been raised up in this area for such a time as this? Now, I'm going to ask you tonight, are we going to make a difference? Are we going to be generation changers? We're going to change this era. We're going to change the area. We're going to change the era we're going to live in. Are we going to make a difference on foreign soil? Are we going to make a difference in the Bay Area? Or are we just going to float along and be like every other church is doing nothing for God? 
And he's saying to, what, to Esther, Esther, you're sitting fine up on your royal throne and you're doing all, you're eating all your dainties and you're enjoying your life and you're getting people to serve you. But don't you understand? There's a people at risk and people are about to die. It's your people and our people. And I know that I told you not to tell them you're a Jew, but now you've got to come out and you've got to tell them exactly what you are. You've got to tell them who you belong to. You've got to tell them who your God is. Don't you know you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, this is your time. And so notice verses 16 and 17, we see a heavy responsibility. When Hatak came back with that response from Mordecai, Holy Spirit's all over this message. It really bothered her to think about the fact when it comes out, they're going to find out you're a Jew too. And do you really think this, it, the law's passed? The law's passed. Did you hear what I said? The law's passed. Study the laws, Christian friend. The law's passed. And once they find out you're a Jew, it doesn't matter you're a queen, you're under the same death penalty. None exempt. And he closes off by saying, who knows that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Well, you know, put your place in Queen Esther's place. She's a young woman, maybe mid to late 20s, probably I think her mid-20s. I mean, she got a heavy message right there. And what was a burden on Mordecai's soul for an entire nation of people, whatever the population was? And that was Esther's heavy responsibility. For the very first time in her life, though she was very young, for the very first time in her life, she accepted the responsibility. The weight of her world was on her shoulders. The responsibility for souls was on her heart. And so she says to Mordecai, I'll tell you what you do. She says, Cousin Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Get everybody in the, in the kingdom here, in the palace. And I want you guys to fast for me. And fast for me for three days, night and day. And she says, I, I and my maidens, I'll get them. I think she was using her influence with some of these people. I think she decided, I better get serious for God. I better get serious with my circle of influence. And those, those maidens that attended to her, she says, I better let them know that who I am and what I'm all about. They, they, they better find out that I serve a living God. Amen. And she says, you go fast. You get all the Jews together. Because they're weeping and crying and wailing about this situation. And she said, listen, you, go, you guys go fast for me. And then she said, I will also fast my maidens, and at the end of three days, I will go to the king. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight, God did some great things in three days, amen? Jonah was in the belly of a whale three days and three nights, and when the, belly, when the whale had enough of that preacher in his belly, amen, he spit him out. You might say the whale got preacher poisoning, amen, you know? He spit him out, and that third day he went bleached with his skin all bleached, looking like a mess. 
He stood outside the king, preached one of the greatest messages of the Bible. He preached outside the kingdom. He said, repent or you perish. And guess what? They repented. But I'll tell you something even greater that happened three days. Our Savior was crucified. They put him to death on the cross. They said he's dead. That troublemaking Jew is dead. And they thought it's done. We have our Sabbath. But oh, glory to God. Before the sun came up, the stone was rolled away. And on that third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. Amen. Man, that's great. He rose again from the dead. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Great things happened in three days. She said, I'm going to fast three days, and I'm going to pray for God to do something. She said, end of three days, I'm going to go to the king. Now, man, I'm going to tell you what. There is a 180-degree difference between the Esther in verse 11 and the Esther now in verse 16. Because the words of that thought that she was under the same death penalty and that God would raise up somebody else and the fact that God had raised her for such a time as this, those very words that were given by the inspiration of God to Mordecai to tell his niece, to tell his cousin Esther, those pierced her heart and changed her life right then and there. And she said, I'll go to the king. Would you notice her words in verse 16? If I perish, I perish. If it costs me, I'll do it. If I've got to lay my life down, I'll do it. If it means I lose the kingdom, I do it. If it means I lose my position, I'll do it. Jesus, if I perish, I perish. So we see a deadly predicament. We see a demanding pressure. Would you notice our last point tonight? This is where it all comes together. Stay with me, please. I want you to see a determined presentation. Go to Esther 5. We come to the central theme of the message. I had to get you the background so you understand where we're at. The three days and nights are over. It came to pass on the third day. We find here Esther is in action. Esther is going to make the presentation of all presentations. You with me? She's going to make a presentation tonight. I mean, here. And this presentation is something we, we need to model, we need to get a hold of, and we need the Holy Spirit to embrace our hearts with tonight. And this presentation, she's now going to go to the king. And she said her last words to, king, to Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. But she said at the end of three days, I'm just going up. Now, there's great faith in her heart. This young woman who never had to exercise faith, she never knew what's going on. She realized that moment in time, it, it would ultimately result in her unveiling that she's a Jew. It would ultimately reveal that she's part of this group that's been under this death sentence. And she's going to make the greatest appeal of her life. She's coming before a king who can change the laws, a king who can change the situation in the kingdom. And to ask this king, I want you to, re I want you to reverse this law and I want you to change it and I'm going to ask you to save the lives of these Jews. She's going to ask him to do something that seemingly looked like it was impossible. Now please listen and I want you to take some notes on this presentation. This will help us tonight. Would you notice first of all the apparel in her presentation. As she goes to this presentation there is this thought in her mind. The king has a law that if he hasn't asked me to come in, he's going to kill me. 
And so there's some apprehension in her of thinking that when I come, will he extend the golden scepter? The exception being, will he extend the golden scepter? And the very first thing God wants us to see in chapter 5, verse 1, as we look at a spiritual application, it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel. Listen, that apparel distinguished her from non-royalty. That apparel was clothing paid for by the king. That apparel demonstrated that she was royal in every sense of the word. That apparel represented she was not just a common her she was a queen that apparel represented that she belonged to the king hey let me tell you tonight i'm thankful this evening when i got saved i got changed and i got new set of clothing god took off those filthy rags of unrighteousness and god put on holy apparel on you and i and god gave you and i a robe of righteousness by which we can stand before the king of glory and know that well that was before he would not hear us and whereas before he was not our father that now he's our father and he's our king and he will air every petition we bring before him oh listen tonight she put on that royal apparel that distinguished her from everyone else. She put on the apparel that represented that she was a daughter of somebody special. It represented that she had clothing that was not paid for by her, but paid for by that king. I'm reminded tonight of what Job said in Job 29:14. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. Isaiah 61:10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decking himself with ornaments and as a bride adorning herself with her jewels. I'm saying tonight, brother, sister, Christ, you get alone somewhere in your prayer closet tonight and you get alone somewhere where you can get alone with God tomorrow morning and you realize tonight that when Jesus Christ saved you, he gave you and I apparel. He gave us royal apparel that we could come to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He paid for that apparel with his shed blood. He bought that apparel for you and I. He gave us that apparel that we would distinguish ourselves from the filthy rags of unrighteousness and realize tonight that we've got robes of righteousness that makes us accepted in the beloved tonight. Amen. We see the apparel. Did you notice the approval? It came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and she stood in the inner court. She's shaking, man. I mean, she is shaking. And she stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. She stood where she knew she needed to stand. By the way, do you know where you're supposed to stand? And the king, listen to me tonight, the king was where he always was. He sat on his throne. By the way, our king is still on his throne. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house. Thank God heaven's a royal house. Amen. Amen. It's a great house, the Bible says. Over against the gate of the house. I want you to understand, here's this beautiful woman. She's the queen. She's put on this royal apparel, and she's making her way there in a dignified royal way. She's walking up, and she stands outside the outside of the king's court, and she's standing there. And boy, thank she was thankful that, it, that the clothing she wore covered her knees, because I bet her knees were shaking and banging on each other. Amen. She is scared. She's wondering what's going on. She's fasted for three days. She knows in her heart of hearts this peace of God that God is in this matter, but she's still a little bit scared, humanly speaking. And she's standing there and she's wondering. And what seemed like seconds, which were only seconds, but that seemed like hours, she's standing there. And we read in verse 2 something wonderful. And was so when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. Thank God she got approval. She got the approval of the king. And notice this. She received favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now, I'm not sure everything she prayed, but I'm certain she must have prayed this. She must have prayed, Lord, when I go before that king, please 
have him extend his golden scepter. Please, when he sees me come in these royal robes of purple, please help when he sees the white and the robe and the beauty and the glitter of those robes, those apparel that he gave me. Please help him that he'll be moved at that moment in time to extend that golden scepter. Because, Lord, you know there's a law that we have in our land. If the king did not beckon me to come, and I haven't been here for over 30 days, Lord, that if he doesn't beckon me to come, then he could even put me to death for being irreverent and coming at the wrong time. And listen, as she approached that, that she stood there, she came there, and the king looked up. And I imagine that king, he looked at her with tender eyes and a smile on his face and the joy of heaven across him. And he says, so glad to see you. I'm so glad to see you, Queen Esther. It's been a long time since I've seen you. It's been a long time since you've been there. And he extended the golden scepter. He got the approval. Hey, listen to me tonight, brother and sister Christ. When you haven't been on the throne, the throne of grace for a long period of time and you haven't prayed to God for a long period of time, oh, Jesus is so happy when you come on your knees and come to him. He has a smile on his face and the glow of heaven all over. And he says, it's so good to see you back in prayer. It's so good to see you back in church. It's so good to see you praying once again there. Oh, man, he's looking at her, and he extends that golden scepter to her. He says, come on, young daughter. Come on, girl, you can come. He extends that golden scepter. You can come. It's okay. You can come. It's okay. You can come. I want to tell you, Christian friend, you may have this perception that God is unapproachable, and God will not hear you, but he extends that golden scepter. He says, come on, son, you can come. Come on, daughter, you can come. But it gets even better. Amen? Amen. Oh, man, we see, we see the apparel, we see the approach, but you know, the, the, the apparel, we see the, we see the approval, but you notice the approach. I love basketball games to get down where the decision has to be made in the final seconds. Amen? I love cliffhanger moments. I don't care about the first four quarters. I just get down to the last 10 seconds if it's a close game. Amen? That's all that matters to me, okay? Because everything else before is all drama. Amen? You know, it's just all a bunch of drama. <clears throat> Man, you get the final five seconds there, and the one shot, it could be a three-pointer, two-pointer, it could be a free throw. Just that one shot could make the difference for whether it's a game, it's gonna, um, uh, they win the game or not. And she's in a cliffhanger moment right there. You understand what I'm saying tonight? She's in a cliffhanger moment. I mean, she's in these seconds here, and she's wondering what's he going to do. And now it comes back to her. The, the golden scepter's extended her. What is she going to do? Would you read verse 2 with me? And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near. Oh, listen to me. Draw near to God. He draws near to you. Amen? Amen. Why are you running from God when you need to draw near to God? Why are you not having fellowship when he wants you to have fellowship? Esther drew near. She hadn't been there for over 30 days. 33 days probably because you had the three days of fast. It's over 33 days. Esther drew near. Would you notice this? And she touched the top of the scepter. I like playing with my little granddaughter, Evie, every now and then. But there's something new. She goes like this. And we say, touch it. She goes, touch my nose. No. Yeah. She's, a little, she's a little afraid. Of, you know, Justin, Justin left this big punching bag at my house. And, 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 and I took her when she was about seven months old. And I said, Evie, touch it, touch it. 
and it, made, it would make this boom, boom, boom snow. You know, when you hit it, you know, it kind of, kind of vibrates. And she touched it. Whoa, she's got to scared. And so for months there, she, I would have her just touch it. She would get very scared. Now she's used to just goes like this. And now she goes like this and touches it. She thinks the dog there. She's petting it there, you know. But <laughs> Esther didn't go like this. Esther went like this. Listen to me tonight. You touch the top of the scepter, you have all the power of the kingdom at your disposal. You touch that that scepter, you've got the one man who could change everything in the world. You touch that scepter and all the riches of the kingdom at your disposal. You touch that scepter and listen tonight, you've got somebody who can do something that nobody else can do. And touching the scepter, she signified she needed to be in the king's audience. And touching his scepter, she signified she's coming to him as a royal relative. And touching the scepter, she was indicating she had a need that was urgent, it was critical, and a need that only that king could answer. As I said earlier, in touching the scepter, she was acknowledging her accessibility to all the power that was in the kingdom. Oh, we see the apparel. We see the approval. We see the approach, but it gets better. Would you see the application? Turn with me to Hebrews 4.16. Would you do that, please? Turn with me. I, I know you know it, but I want you to read it with me. Hebrews 4.16. And I'd like you to do something different tonight. I want you to read that with me. Would you do that, please? Because the application is the principle found in Hebrews 4.16. You there? Hebrews 4.16. Let's read together. Let us... Therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's read again. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, touching the scepter of the king is an invitation for you and I to enter into the presence of God through prayer and to come to that throne of grace. Let's break this down for just a minute and see what's going on. First of all, notice he, the invitation. Let us therefore. It is not let you therefore, let us therefore. It's an invitation for all of God's children, all those who are saved and blood-bought and born again, who know Jesus Christ as Savior, that all of us can come to Him. But you've got to understand the context of Hebrews chapter 4. To interpret this without the context of Hebrews 4, you would do a disservice to your privilege of prayer. The context there is that, J- that the Paul is writing, who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews, Paul is writing to believers who had hit a ceiling. They're not fruitful. They're going backwards. In fact, the moment where he's talking to them, they're, they're dealing with the second setback that he alludes to there, the setback of unbelief in their hearts and, and, and not, not being obedient to the word of God. And he's talking to them about the fact that, you know, you've hit this place where you're not going forward, you're not going forward, and you're going slowly going backwards. And so there's a series of let us is found in Hebrews chapter 4. And the very first one, he says, let us therefore labor. Let's get back to work. Let's get back to serving God. I mean, he talks about these various let us's. He talks about let us come to God. But he closes all that, that fourth one there in verse 16. And he says, listen, I know all 
all these things. We've got the word of God. We've got to go back to labor. We've got Jesus, the high priest of God, who represents us before heaven. And we can be, we can be firm as we look to him. But listen, the one thing we need to do, if we're going to get past all these ceilings, and we're going to get past our, our inhibitions, and we're going to get past our fears, and we get past our insecurities, and we get past our little faith. And by the way, that's why he wrote Hebrews chapter 11, because their faith had declined. They had little faith or no faith. And so he's writing this here, and he says, listen, here's the, here's the summation of all we've got to do here. We've got, to, we've got to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. He says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, tonight, if Charities Baptist Church is going to break through some ceilings and we're going to have some better years and we're going to see the power of God come down, it can't be just the pastor or a few doing it. It's got to be the entire church. Let us therefore come boldly before God. We've got to all be approaching God the same way. And by the way, you better make sure you're saved tonight. Then you pray to the right God. Amen. And so he says here, notice the elements of prayer. Let us therefore notice, come boldly to the throne of grace. Listen tonight, if you're not saved, God's throne is not a throne of grace right now. It's a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of grace, it's a throne of judgment. Because if you don't accept Jesus Christ as Savior, if you think you can save yourself, if you think that good works will get you to heaven, if you think that being baptized will get you there, if you think that you're living good life and you've got a lot of time, listen, that throne of grace for the believer is a throne of judgment for every unbeliever right now. But boy, when you get saved, praise the Lord. Oh, man. I'm no longer a child of the devil. I'm a child of God. I'm no longer a child of disobedience. I'm a child of obedience. I'm no longer a child walking in darkness. I'm a child walking in the light. Praise God. I'm a child of the King. Amen. And Paul said, come boldly. I know about your insecurities, Alan. Come boldly. I know about your fears, Alan. Come boldly. I know your perceptions are all messed up because of an insecure background, but come boldly. I know that you've been disappointed by people along the way, but come boldly. I realize you've never prayed a great prayer before, but come boldly. I realize you have a hard time exercising faith, but come boldly. You know what God's telling you and I? Put away your fears, put away your insecurities, put away your forethoughts and all these other thoughts, and just come before God, and whatever it is, pour out your heart before a loving God. boldly then he says come boldly to the throne of grace a lot of us don't come boldly because we're hesitant to pray we're just like Esther was we're hesitant to pray it's a throne of grace because it's approachable at all times it's a throne of grace because sometimes we don't even know what to pray but that doesn't matter to God God knows what's going on in our hearts amen the Holy Spirit makes utterance for us, which cannot, makes groanings for us, which cannot be uttered. I'm not sure what those groanings are, but I believe it's a holy language. It takes my inarticulation and makes it articulate before God. Amen. Amen. As a throne approachable because of the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, when we think about all that God does, there's no wonder he gives us Romans 8, 31, 32. What shall we say then to these things of God before us? And by the way, the throne of grace demonstrates that God is for you. If God be for us, who can be against us? Listen, here's the promise for prayer. He that spared not his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And I like that word freely. He says he will freely give us all things for his glory. Come boldly. 
God extends that golden scepter and he says, hey, will you come out and can you see the golden scepter? Would you reach out and hold on to it? Would you reach out and touch it? Can you see the Father in heaven extending that golden scepter to you? Would you reach out and touch it? Would you touch that golden scepter for your father? Would you touch that golden scepter for your mother? Would you touch that golden scepter for your unsafe family members? Would you touch that golden scepter for someone in the hospital? Would you just reach out and come boldly before God? Come boldly means you don't hold back your request. Come boldly means you come at any time of the day. Come boldly means you can come regardless of the threat. Come boldly means it doesn't matter what laws are passed. Come boldly means there's a God in heaven that says, come boldly before the throne of grace tonight. Then he says this, which is such encouragement, that we may obtain mercy. Now, I'm glad he didn't say that we may obtain a million dollars. Amen. Otherwise, we're back on a material Jesus, not a Jesus that satisfies our hunger. Amen. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot you need. You don't need a million. You need mercy. You're on your deathbed. You don't need a million dollars. You need mercy. You're going to hell. Listen, you could do all the good. You don't need church. You need mercy. Mercy is divine pity and compassion. As a father pities his children, so our Father in heaven pities us. And before we get too hard on other people and become overly judgmental in our way of thinking, always remember, if God dish out on us what we dish out on others, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Thank God for mercy. Amen? Thank God for mercy. Do you come to God as a mercenary or in need of mercy? You come to God in madness or need of mercy. The divine formula for prayer in Hebrews 4.16 says call for mercy. And then he says that we obtain mercy. Now, that tells me as I read that and carefully look at that, it's implied I'm going to get mercy if I seek mercy. You know, we're so abrupt in our praying. We rush right into things without taking whatever time necessary to acknowledge God and His attributes. So I took a moment this morning as I was looking at our song before opening prayer. I said, you know, I'm just going to take a moment to talk about the holiness of God because we, we rush worship and forget about God's holiness. You can't rush God's holiness. Did you know that? You can't rush the holiness of God. Then he says, Hebrews 4, 16, that we may turn mercy. And notice this next phrase. And find grace. Do you know prayer is a treasure hunt? Search and discover. That's what the word find means. You're looking diligently. That's what he talks about in the book of Hebrews. It's repeated over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Looking diligently. He says, you know what you need more than anything else, Alan? You need to ask for mercy and find his grace. You see, people that have a difficult time in praying or a difficult time in giving, they haven't been in their, on their face before God to pray. Let me tell you tonight, we're going to be having stewardship emphasis in a couple weeks. If you're not a tithing Christian, it's my, my, my prayer, my desire to encourage you to be a tithing Christian. But to be a tithing Christian, you need to experience, you need to find grace to, in time of need. To find his grace to help you. You want to learn how to be a gracious giver? Hey, listen, the Bible says that the believers of Master were able to give beyond themselves. How'd they do that? They found grace. 
Grace was working their hearts. Listen, sometimes we find it hard to serve the Lord, and God, God knows that. And so he tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, let us, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. We need grace to serve. And sometimes we go through trials, and the trials dissipate us, and the trials weaken us, and, and the trials take away all of our strength, and, and we feel depleted, and we feel weak. And yes, we're praying, we're reading our Bible, we're hitting some dry spots along the way there. Can I tell you something tonight? That's why God gave us 2 Corinthians 12, and he tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that God's grace works in spite of our weakness. Amen? His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Then we, may find, then we may obtain mercy and find grace. Notice the word help. For many of you new to the church, would you circle the word help? The word help is only used two times in the New Testament. It's used here and again in Acts chapter 27. In Acts chapter 27, it has this idea of what, navi what nautical navigators, nautical people who were experiencing going on the ocean, they called it frapping. Not frappuccino, frapping, Amen. <laughs> Frappings were when they took these heavy uh, cords of rope that were knitted. You never left shore. You never left a dock without these cords of rope. And they would take these heavy cords of rope longer than that could go several times around the ship. Because all those ships back in those days, they were engineered and constructed out of wood. And when you got into a storm, listen, with the waves battering and, the, and just the impact of all that, that you would hear the creaking and the creaking and the creaking. And eventually nails would pop and boards would pop out. And man, you're in a heap of mess. If a bottom pops out and water starts coming into your boat, Amen. And so what those navigators who did, you read this over in Acts chapter 27, it says when all hope was gone, they went out there before that happened. They went out there and they, the Bible says they put helps around that. They put these cords, these cables, if you would, around the, around the ship to hold it together. And they held it together as best they could. Listen, the reason why that ship in Acts 27 did not break up in that Mediterranean Sea during that Eurycladon cyclone. And the, one, the reason why it did break up is because they put those cords on carefully. They were woven carefully. And when they wrapped it and held that boat together, hey, Listen, there's some trials you're going to go through and I'm going to go through that are bigger than you. They're going to zap your strength and take away your joy and take away your energy. And if you're not very careful, if you linger in that trial, that problem, you're going to fall apart. But thank God when we come to God in prayer, we can come to our Heavenly Father. We take mercy. And with that grace, He wraps us with cables of grace that keep us from falling apart, that keep us from losing our mind, that keep us from going nuts, from keep us from having to be committed to an institution. Listen, God wraps us with those cables of grace when we just fight enough strength to get to God and say, God, I'm about to fall apart. I'm going to lose my mind. God, I can't make it. And God comes around us with the love that he talks about in Romans chapter 8. And he wraps us with that love. And he embraces us with that love. And he holds us together with that love. And as he embraces us, listen to me tonight, he eats you and I together so we don't fall apart. Amen. Amen. That we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For who knows that thou art here for such a time as this? That's a time of need. Did you notice Esther 5, 3 now? We're almost done. She touches the top, the top of the scepter. Are you with me? She's holding on to the top of the scepter. And the king, this smile on his face, he's giving her approval. He's so thankful. Man, it's been a long time since you've been here, Esther. I'm so glad you're here. Then said the king to her, this is wonderful. What wilt thou, Queen Esther? What is thy request? Aren't you glad we got a king in heaven that says the same thing? Amen. Ask of me. I'll give you the heavens above 
and the earth beneath. He said, listen, it's an open checkbook. It's a blank checkbook I give you. And he said, you have all the resources of heaven. What is thy request? What does he want? And he says in verse 3, it shall be even given to thee to half of the kingdom. And that was a big kingdom. What wilt thou? An open checkbook. An uninhibited, uninhibited supply line. Resources that are unending. Wealth beyond calculation. Why aren't you asking? Why aren't you coming? Why aren't you approaching? And if you're approaching, why are you coming the wrong way? We have one more thing I want you to see. And we're done. Esther touches the top of the crown. I mean, the top of that scepter. We're not done yet. All right, you better hold on now. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. You're going to take your shoes off and run around like a Pentecostal when it's all done. Amen? I mean, she has her, we see the apparel. And we see the approval. And we see the approach. We see the application. I want you to see the appeal. We're not done yet. She just touched it. That's our problem. We get so close, we just touch it, but we don't go further. We're going to break some ceilings. This is how she broke some ceilings here. Look at verses 7 and 8. He said, what wealth thou? Appeal number one, prayer request number one. She says, um, king, I'm going to have a banquet. And I want you and Haman to come to the banquet. Now, there was nothing suspicious about it because it was a royal banquet. The two top dignitaries of the kingdom plus her are going to be there. And so this is very special. And the king says, wow, you made a banquet for me, girl. Because normally it's the king making a banquet for everyone else. And so she's, she's whatever. I don't know where she gets the money. I don't know how it worked out. It doesn't matter. She says, I'm going to have a banquet. And we're going to have a wonderful banquet. And she says, I want you and Haman. And Haman, Haman comes up close. He says, oh, you mean I get to go to the banquet? You, you, you're going to invite me? I mean, you know, you know. And he didn't even have to give her an RSVP. It was just, you're going to come. And she says, you're going to come to the banquet. I'm going to have a banquet tomorrow. And I want you to come to it. And so appeal number one, she says, would you come to the banquet? I want you to come. And uh, so, so, so that happens there. And verse, so, so Haman goes home, notice in verse 9. And he's happy. And he doesn't have an idea what's going on here. And he's happy about this matter. And he tells his wife that we're going to the banquet. But he sees Mordecai. And he gets very upset. And he's so upset. Notice now, his wrath has turned to murder. And his wrath turns to murder, and he says, you know, I can't stand that guy. He starts talking to his wife, and listen, his wife was his counselor to do evil. Ladies, be careful what advice you tell your husbands. Be his counselor for good and not for evil. Anyway, don't look at Jennifer that way. (laughs) Slap him. You got my permission. Haman says, you know what? Make a gallows really high. Hang that man on it. And listen, this is, this is the day of the banquet now. They're getting ready for the banquet. They're building these gallows. And if you read the scripture, it's a very high, it's a very high set of gallows. And so he's thinking, man, I'm going to go to this banquet. Man, Haman's thinking high. He's so full of himself. He's so full of pride. 
He's so full of himself. He says, I'm going to go to this banquet with the queen, and I'm going to be there, man. I, he says, I must be in line for another promotion. You presumptuous fool, amen? I must be in line for another promotion. Maybe something good's going to happen today. He sounds like Joel Austin. Something good's going to happen today, amen? They go to the banquet. Go to chapter 6. The king has already extended the golden scepter to her. You follow what I'm saying? He's already extended to her. We're still in the first request. And he says in verse 6, Haman came in. As soon as he came in, the king, uh, oh, excuse me, we'll go here to chapter, chapter, let me see here. Chapter 6 here, chapter 7. Go to chapter 7. Sorry, I said chapter 6. And of course, you know, chapter 6, that's where kind of just a break there that God has. There's poetic justice that God does here against, uh, against Haman here. And Haman's discouraged. We get to chapter 7. And so the king says to her again in, in chapter 7, he says, we're still on the first request. It's on the second day of the banquet. He says, what's that petition, Queen Esther? He says, hey, we had the banquet. You still didn't tell me what you want. What's your petition? She'll be granted thee. And what is thy request? Now, that's exactly what she wanted to hear. And she unfolds. She unloads on the king. She says, king, I got to tell you, there is a man here that wants to kill all, that wants to kill me and my people. She says, O king, notice verse 3, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be given me in my request. Now, that, that raised eyebrows because what, what do you mean your life be given? Your, what, do you, what do you mean your life is in jeopardy? What are you talking about, Queen Esther? And she says, that she says, O king, if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, my people, at my request. Notice verse 4, for we are sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we have been sold for bomb and bomb women, I would help my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Did she say here, listen, we've been sold out. We've been sold out by somebody in your kingdom. We've been undermined here in this kingdom, and we're going to be put to death. We're going to be destroyed. There's an edict there to destroy. Now the king's getting upset here because, remember, he's a very temperamental, impulsive man. Again, you have to see the providence of God in all this because God was working in this kingdom in spite of a temperamental, impulsive man. I mean, this guy had a lot of problems as a king because he was like a spoiled child, given everything there. And he's, he gets upset. He says, will you tell me, Queen Esther, what's going on here? Who's coming after you? She's just that wicked Haman right there. Whoa. <laughs> the adversary and enemy, verse 6, this wicked Haman. Haman was afraid. Boy, you better be afraid. Thou art the man. Haman's scared for his life. Now, you know, when you get, you get paranoid to a place you're so scared, do you ever notice, if, you, if you're not in control of your fears or God's not in control of your fears, did you ever notice that you make bad decisions? Yeah. Take no counsel in your fears. Remember that tonight. Never take counsel in your fears. And so the king is upset. I mean, he's, he's steaming mad because, number one, this is public outrage. Number two, it's a public embarrassment because he put this guy, he's like number two in the kingdom. He's thinking, you know, and you know how it is. If a scandal gets unveiled, and you're thinking, wait, 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 wait. It couldn't be. It couldn't be. That, that can't be true, you know. Scandals, scandals happen. You say, it can't be true. I heard of one that happened a few months ago, and it just blew my mind. And I asked the guy, told me, I said, you, you're kidding me. This is, can't be true. He said, it's true. He says, let me, give, let me give you the information. You go look it up yourself. And I looked up and said, oh, my goodness. 
And so the king is steaming over because, you know, he, he, he doesn't question Queen Esther and he realizes she's such a golden scepter. And she realizes if she, if she incriminates herself for perjury, she could have to big trouble there. And so the king is steaming. He's thinking about, man, this guy, he got me, and he's thinking in his mind, this guy got me to sign a law to kill all the Jews and he's putting two hundred together. She's a Jew and she's my queen. She's my bride. He told me to sign a law to kill my bride. Now you mess with the king. It's one you mess with his bride, man. Now you, you got the fury of the king on you. Amen? By the way, Jesus feels the same way. Don't mess with his bride. Amen? Don't mess with his bride. I'm telling you tonight, if you've got inclinations to mess with his bride, God's going, Jesus is going to deal with you. You leave this church and you get all disgruntled about the church and you start calling people, I found a new church, I'm going someplace. You had the right church. You just, you just didn't realize you got all messed up in your mind. You went to somewhere else because you're out of fellowship with God. And by the way, if you're out of fellowship with God, you change churches, you should not do damage to that other church. Well, you know, here's what goes on. Hey, hey, the king walks outside. He says, man, I got to get a breath of fresh air. This is too much for me. Like, I can't, I can't handle this, you know. He's, think, he's thinking in his mind, what do I do? And again, bear in mind, this is an impulsive king. He's temperamental. How many understand? Some of you are very temperamental. If you kick him off the wrong way, man, you don't know what's going to happen there, amen? And he's outside thinking about things. And here comes old Haman. You got to remember, the, the way they ate their, their banquets, they didn't sit at tables like we do, okay? They had these, these lounges and these couches that they sat on, and, and they're sitting on these couches. And, and typically, if you, and even the, at the Last Supper, the, you know, the disciples are kind of leaning on the couch. Now, to us, we're looking like a lazy man uh, sitting there eating. It's like, you know, you know, like the pizza commercial? You know, the guy's laying down, going like this, like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, that, that's what we think. But that's how they did things in their culture. They would just, they would, you know, they, they knew how to enjoy eating. That's what I'm trying to say, okay? They knew how to enjoy eating. And so the king comes back in, and Haman's laying on the couch next to the queen. She's sitting there in her same position, and he's trying to appeal for his life. He's queen, you've got to let me go. And he's, he's just being a fool, amen? And he's just appealing to her, and he's up close, and he's in a very inappropriate position, and, doing, and he's in a position that looks very inappropriate to the king. And the king comes in, and man, you take a king that's already, the dynamite's already been lit, and the fuse has been lit, he's about to explode, and he says, what? This man is going to kill the Jews, and now he's trying to take advantage of my queen while I'm outside? That's it. He says, take my son and hang him on those gallows outside. You reap what you sow. Request number one. They dealt with Haman. Notice request number two. We've got to keep moving. Here, here, we're almost there. Look at chapter 8, verses 3 to 6. Haman's hung on the gallows of chapter 7. And notice chapter 8, verse 1. On that day did the king of Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the Jews, enemy unto Esther, the queen. And he got, she got the whole house. And Mordecai came before the king. For Esther told her what, what he was unto her. He, he said, now I've got to tell you everything. What's going on here? And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Well, what a change of events. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. And then notice verse 3. And Esther spake yet again before the king, and fell down at his feet, and besought him with tears to put away, <laughs> put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite, and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther. Hey, aren't you glad? You don't have, God is not a one-time stop. You can go again and again and again and again. That's why I love what it says over in James chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. Elias was a man subject like passions as we are, and he prayed that it might not rain, and rain not for the space of three or six months. And notice this, and he prayed again. Listen, Esther realized that there was more to this, and she needed to veil all the riches of the kingdom. She averted, she, she, she averted this problem with Haman, but the law was still there. The law needed to be changed. 
And she goes to the king and she's crying and weeping. And notice verse 2 and how poignantly it describes her that she comes to him in verse 3 and she falls down before the feet of the king. She's in the presence of the king. She has come boldly before him, beseeched with tears to put away the mist of Haman. And so you know what the king does? Touch it again. Touch it again. Touch it again. Touch it again. And so he, he puts it out and she touched it again. She said, what do you want me to do? She said, I want you to change the law. Now I'm going to tell you something tonight that will blow your mind. We get so worked up about laws that get passed, and whether we've got Democrats in Congress or Republicans in Congress, we need to stop worrying about which house is in control and realize he is in control. You read your Bible, and this I'm going to tell you tonight, you may think I'm talking some funny business out there, but you read your Bible in Esther, and you read your Bible in the book of Daniel, God is in the business changing laws when nobody else can change those laws. He changes the law. Let me give you a recap real quickly. He changes the law. He extends his royal scepter to her and he changes the law. And she's found grace to help in time of need once again. And a new law was signed. And listen, 500 foes in Shushan the palace were found out and were poor. they were put to death. The 10 sons of Haman were found out and they were put to death. Do you see what's going on? She had to deal with the problem within. Listen, if you're not going to the throne of grace, you can't deal with the problem within. The problem within is the world, the flesh, and the devil in our lives. That's why we don't have victory over our spiritual forces. That's why Satan's running wild all over. That's why those fiery darts of Satan are firing and piercing the shield you have. Because your shield of faith just doesn't exist. Man, she's dealing with the problem within. She's just now eradicated 500 foes and shoes down the belt. I don't even think they knew they had 500 foes until she, she got that law changed. You'd be surprised how much demonic activity is going on in your life and my life behind the scenes around your home, around your stuff because you're not praying and spending time with God and pleading with God and going out and touching that golden scepter for God to do something in your life. But there's a third request. Praise God for that. Amen. You say, how many requests do you have? Well, I, I, you'll be glad to know this is the last one. Amen. Go to chapter 9, verse 12. And the king said to Esther, the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men and shoots down the palace and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now they're going outside the walls of province. They're going out into the outside world. They're going on foreign soil. What shall be done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is thy petition? Listen, he said, what do you want? What do you want? What can I do for you, Esther? He says, now what is thy petition? What shall be granted thee? What is thy request further? And it shall be done. And she said in verse 13, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according to this king, this day's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged. So the ten sons of Haman are hanged. And then we read later on in a later verse of scripture there that as they went through the kingdom, I'm talking about from Egypt all the way to India, 75,000 foes that had assembled themselves that were going to put the Jews to death, 75,000 were put to death instead. All because she came boldly and touched the scepter of the king. I need to wrap it up. Let me say some things tonight. There's more to say, but I need to finish. Did you notice tonight that as long as she touched the scepter of the king, watch this. Did you notice tonight as long as she touched the scepter of the king, there was no ceiling to what the king would do for her? There was no ceiling to what he would do for her. You have not because you ask not. Listen to me, look up here. Get, out your, get, get up from reading the Bible. Look up here. We need to get serious about praying. 
I didn't ask if you prayed. I said we need to get serious about praying. We need to stop playing. We need to be praying. Prayer negligence is the reason for powerlessness, fruitlessness, and slow death. Here's what a lot of us do. We come to King's presence, and the golden scepter is extended, but we haven't touched it. We haven't touched it. Listen to what Spurgeon said. This is so good. A prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is in the body like a rotting bone or decayed tooth. What an analogy. Before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of his brethren, he will become a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. Wow. That's a sermon right by itself. Dr. Rice said all of our failures are prayer failures. Let me give you some questions and we're done. Would you step out of the fear of apprehension and hesitancy and touch the scepter of the king? I'm going to call on the young people tonight. Get out of your fears. Well, if I, if, I, if I ever consider serving God full-time with my life, I don't know who's going to take care of me. I know who's going to take care of you. He'll take care of you. Why is that even in your mind? Probably because your parents put it in your mind. We talk about a church, God will supply all my need, but then when our kids want to surrender, we say, well, I'm not sure God can take care. God will take better care of you than you, than, them than you can take care of them. Dr. Dr. Lorena started, started the church in San Pedro on 385 pesos a month. That's $6 a day. You know how many they've had? I got the report last night. Brother Justin, I just got the report from Brother Mord and Brother L Dr. Lorena last night. I was up texting Dr. Lorena up to probably midnight last night. They've had 112,000 people off-site through yesterday. You said, where do they have them? They had an electronics company. says, come on in and preach the gospel to our employees. We have a picture of it. They have a whole military base, Brother AJ, a whole military base. I mean, I'm talking hundreds of people. A whole military base, they preach the gospel to these military guys. They're in jails. They're in the schools, and they let them use the schools for free. Why? He touched the scepter of the king. You know how many they've had in church? Literally in the church service on four, three or four Sundays, they've had 12,000 people physically, first-time visitors physically on the property. They gave us a count last night. We thought there were 4,400. The Sunday I was there, February 3rd, it was 5,100 people that were there all that day. They heard the gospel. Most of them got saved. So let me give you these thoughts, and we're done. Would you touch the scepter of the king for your personal holiness? Yes. You struggling with sin, with lust, anger, unforgiveness, insecurities? Touch the scepter of the king for your personal holiness. Would you touch the scepter of the king for your lost family members? Let's get serious for God. Hey, this year, hey, I told the story. There's a family, get just how God worked. A family came to our church, not, that, that, that came to our church, and the two sons got saved right before that. And there were some issues going on the home. And we started working. They started coming to church every Sunday. And then finally, the mother got saved on December 16th. And this past Monday, I went over to see the family. I was spending some time with the sons, doing some discipling with them. And as I did so, the husband came out and said, Pastor, I just want to tell you. He said, I was starting to read my Bible. I promised to start reading my Bible. And he said, today I realized. He said, what I read today from Luke chapter 11 pierced my heart. He says, I stopped and prayed and asked Jesus Christ to save me from my sin. I said, what did you pray? I wanted to know, what did you pray? He said, you go over that every Sunday. You tell people how to get saved. I did exactly what you told people people how to do what to do to get saved. I know I'm saved tonight. Hey, the whole family's saved. Would you touch the scepter of, 
the, touch the scepter of the king for your lost family members? Would you touch the scepter of the king for labors for the harvest? Yes. Now, Jesus gave us a prayer request. He said, pray ye, therefore the Lord of the harvest. He sent forth labor. We're supposed to pray for labors for the harvest. It might just be you start praying for labors of the harvest. God might touch you to be a labor in the harvest. Amen? Would you touch the scepter of the king for the souls of sinners that need to be saved? Would you touch the scepter of the king to overcome evil all about us? Would you touch the scepter of the king for God to use this church to make advances for his kingdom, for winning souls and making disciples in the church to do greater things than it's ever done before? Will you touch the scepter of the king? When you look at everything she did, Esther's presentations to God saved the lives of an entire people group. Did you know if you prayed right and God moved you to surrender to go to the mission field, your life could be the difference maker for many, many people not going to hell. Did you know if you are a soul winner, a biblical soul winner like you should be, we could, there, there are people that will wind up going to hell. They're, not, they, they're going to hell. They could be averted from going to hell. I'm just saying that Esther, Esther, Esther touched a separate king, and because of it, it saved the lives of an entire people group. When she touched the scepter of the king, she exposed and dealt with the foes that were within her home. She touched the scepter of the king, exposed and dealt with the foes that were outside of her home on foreign soil. Stop playing at prayer. Let's get praying with God. Reach out and touch the scepter of the king. Father, tonight I thank you for your church listening so obediently and carefully tonight. We see this deadly predicament result in a demanding pressure. We see a determined presentation. The disciples said, teach us to pray, Lord. Help us tonight to come boldly. Let us come boldly with humility. Lord, we're afraid to ask. We're afraid to call unto you. We're afraid to do something big. We're afraid to do something by faith. Let us therefore come boldly before a throne of grace. Lord, there's some tonight that are broken and hurting. And I pray that you'll give them grace to help. I pray those cables of grace would wrap itself around their lives, around their souls, their heart, to comfort them from falling apart, from making drastic decisions, and realizing there's a God in heaven who loves them. Oh, Father, tonight compel us to pray. Compel us to get serious about prayer and touching the scepter of the king. The moment I'm going to give the invitation, as soon as the piano starts playing, you need to come and join us in prayer tonight. Get serious for God. Get serious for God. Stop playing with prayer. Let's stand. Let's get serious for God. Would you pray for your church? Would you pray for the kingdom? Would you pray for foreign soil, for God to save souls? Would you pray for labors for the harvest? Jesus asked me, and I'll give you the heathen for thine inheritance, would you pray? And then tonight, I invite you this evening, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, and all that, I want to say, I'm going to sum it up to this. You can touch that throne of the, that, the scepter of the king and get saved tonight because it's a scepter of grace and love. He, he stands at Jesus. You can be saved. You can enjoy eternal life forever and forever. Let's do that tonight. Would you reach out? 
some people you know in your heart that need to get saved. We need to break through some ceilings. We need to get through some barriers. We need these, these inhibitions to be moved, and we need to get past those ceilings. Would you do that tonight? Fathers, we're praying around the room, and I don't want people, Lord, to, to be feel rushed, but, Lord, we really need to work on our prayer lives and our prayer time with God, learning what it means to come boldly before a throne of grace, to find mercy and obtain grace to help in time of need, and realizing how powerful prayer is and how wonderful God can change and avert things. We could, we could change what happens in missions if we do like Esther did. We could change what happens in this area if we do like Esther did. Lord, help us tonight that we would just consider tonight those things we saw, those principles of prayer. And I pray tonight for some, maybe this evening, the Holy Spirit's tugging at their heart. They need Christ. They need to get saved. Pray that before they leave the church tonight, they'd call on Jesus to save them. Father, thank you for loving us this evening and working in our lives. Thank you for results and changes we'll see. We ask these things of you now in Jesus.